everybody is quite uh, familiar with our pattern, I think, that on the first Sunday of the month, uh, we're taking time to do this. So uh, the next meeting like this one will be, I believe, on the 4th of April. Is that the first Sunday of April? At 9 o'clock, when uh, Dr. Trinkler will be back uh, once more for uh, his presentation, which will be a kind of a, a, kind of a conclusion, or perhaps a, a kind of a summary uh, to uh, everything that we'll have said by that time. And uh, tying together, as I understand it, science and faith and the Christian church. So it uh, sounds to me like a very appropriate and practical uh, issue for all of us to be uh, here to consider. So by all means, plan to come back, and uh, it uh, still won't be too late to uh, bring along a friend, even if the friend has uh, missed out on what we've done you know, on uh, up to this point. Now I'd like to uh, begin with a prayer. We give you our thanks, O oh God, for all the ways in which you bless us. And uh, we, are, we are grateful for the fact that we have the ability to be able to use our minds and uh, to uh, search and to discover and uh, to move in the direction of the truth. And we pray that in all the ways that we search for the truth, both uh, spiritually and scientifically and every other way, that you would uh, endow us with your blessing and that you would enable us always to be those kinds of people who are the people of faith and who bring glory to your name and honor to your being and by which we are able to make known your truth and your love and your salvation to all men. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The subject today is miracles. And I'd like to start it with a little story. It seems there was a man fixing his roof. And at one point in the proceedings, he lost his footing, and he came sliding down the roof, and things looked pretty grim. And even though he was not a regular church member, he decided perhaps the thing to do is to pray that things would turn out all right. So he prayed to the Lord that he would help him in this dire situation and not to result in an injury. And about halfway down the roof, the man cried out, Never mind, God, I'm caught on a nail. <laughs> now the question arises, did his prayer get answered? Was it a miracle? Well, not to him. He thought he didn't need God anymore. The nail came in handy. You should only pray when it's really important. Well, there's another similar story that goes back a few years that has similar implications. How true is this? I don't know. How true anything is, we learned in our first lecture, is a matter of degree, isn't it? And how many experiments you do. And when you're talking about something historical, how true is it? How true is it that Abraham Lincoln ever lived? Did you see him? I didn't see him. I read it in a book. I believe the book. That's faith. In Russia, they do that very periodically. They rewrite history books. And if they don't want somebody to have lived, they take his name out. And future generations don't know he lived. 
Well, anyway, the story is told that when Napoleon took his army to Moscow, like other armies before and after, he had great difficulty with the climate. And as you know, Moscow was not conquered by Napoleon. It was a great defeat. But there's one little story about that defeat that has a bearing on this morning's topic. And that is, when the French soldiers in the cold weather in front of Moscow started buttoning their uniforms one day, <coughs> the buttons disintegrated. And eventually, I'm told that part of the reason Napoleon could not conquer Moscow is that the French uniforms didn't stay up. And it's pretty hard for a soldier to fight even with his uniform up. Now was that an answer to the prayer of the Russians? Well, the scientists went to work and reproduced that experiment and found out that the buttons of the French uniforms were made out of a tin alloy. And as an organist knows, if the church gets too cold on Sunday, the tin pipes in the organ have a tendency to disintegrate because tin changes its allotropic form into a form that crumbles. It's called the tin pest. Well, Napoleon's soldiers had the tin pest and they couldn't keep their trousers up. Now to the Russians, this was an answer to prayer. To the French, it was a disaster. What is a miracle? Miracle is naturally something I want, isn't it? it may not be a miracle to somebody else. So the first thing we're faced with this morning is when we talk about miracles in our lives and in the Bible and whether we can make them happen today and whether we should ask God for them or not, first thing is to find out what it is. The dictionary says a miracle is an extremely unusual event. Well, that leads entirely open the problem of what is unusual and what is extremely unusual. The Catholic Church has the definition that a miracle is something that you need in order to become a saint. To be declared a saint in the Catholic Church, it must be proved that you were responsible, dead or alive, for four miracles. Two, you're halfway, you're beatified. Four, you're a saint. Now that could be that somebody prayed to you after you're dead, and a miracle or a healing of cancer or something occurred. That's how recent American saints became saints. It was established in hospitals that certain people were cured because, according to the definition of sainthood, there was prayer to this particular person. Luther, a little closer to home for us, also wrote about miracles. And he says, miracles are all of nature, especially if it happens in the next town. <laughs> Luther was a very good sermonizer. And he said, if a person comes to you and says, I was in a far country, and I saw this animal with a long trunk and a wrinkled skin and all this. He said, it's impossible. That's a miracle. But if it happens here, if you say, I just saw a duck, well, that's no miracle. We see it every day. To Luther, something that you don't see every day is a miracle. And yet, since for somebody it's far away, all of nature, all of creation, is a miracle. We just get used to it. 
In my series of interviews with famous scientists around the world, I went to Johns Hopkins University because I wanted to get the medical opinion of what is a miracle. And I made an appointment with the head of the hospital. And he told me in a very long discussion that every doctor at Johns Hopkins and in fact all over the world knows <coughs> that every healing of every wound is a miracle. No doctor on earth, he said, can heal anybody. All we can do, he said, is cut you apart. God puts you back together. Now there is an equation for wounds. I didn't know this. If you measure how long it is, how wide it is, how deep it is, there's an equation. You plug it in and it tells you, unless it's an infection, how long it's going to take to heal. Well, that's an equation of a miracle, you see. We cannot begin to make that wound heal. We can only cut it and then say, now we're going to wait for it to heal. Other scientists had other definitions of miracles. I'd like to read two. One of them is by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Dr. Hynek is the person who is considered to be the authority on UFOs in the world. And in fact, he's responsible for the movie Strange Encounters of the Third Kind. That's from his book. And Dr. Hynek told me, science is powerless to deal with something that isn't repetitive. Galileo would never have gotten the laws of motion if he had rolled a ball down an inclined plane just once. By the way, Newsday said last week that Galileo didn't make any of that up. He just copied it from somebody else. I don't know if you saw that on Friday. There was a picture of Galileo, and it said Galileo was guilty of plagiarism. That if Galileo was the father of science, there was a grandfather. <laughs> and at the time of Galileo, that was not considered bad to copy somebody else. So when I say Galileo, maybe somebody else did it. I don't know. What is true? He had to repeat and repeat and make many, many measures. Miracles, Heineck says, are not in the field of the potentially publicly knowable area. There is no way of testing whether they did or did not occur. The scientist simply says about miracles, it is not in my playing field. Science does not say that miracles do not happen. Science says, according to Mr. UFO, that miracles are not a subject that a scientist can investigate because it is not repeatable. One other one. This was by a physicist I spoke to at the University of Oslo in Norway, Dr. Jutterud, and he told me miracles are very special phenomena that just happen once. They are very difficult to tackle in exact science because we don't have the possibility of repeating the experiment. It is against the attitude of science to deny this. But he's saying it is unscientific for a person to say that miracles are unscientific. So we're not being unscientific by talking about miracles. Another definition of miracles is by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who is probably the most profound and most strictly rational 
writer on the Christian faith of the last century. Very, very organized in his presentations on the Christian faith. And he wrote a whole book on miracles. And he classifies them. He says there are six kinds. I didn't know that. There were six kinds of miracles, and here they are. Miracles of fertility, where you make something grow. Miracles of healing. Miracles of destruction, where something uh, is destroyed. Miracles of dominion over the inorganic, like Christ changing water into wine that was inorganic. Miracles of reversal, where something goes in the opposite direction of where it did before. Somebody died, he came back. <coughs> you know, time is the only thing in science that runs in only one direction. There's an up, there's a down, there's a plus, there's a minus, there's an opposite of everything but time. Miracles of perfecting or glorifying. I strongly recommend the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Well, let's look into the Bible for miracles. The Bible is God's handbook on the Christian's life. How many times are there miracles in the Bible? Oh, there are a great many. A great many. If you take the miracles out of the Bible, you don't have a very spiritual book left. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson couldn't stand the miracles in the Bible, and he took them all out and copied the Bible over without them. You could go to the library and pick up Jefferson's Bible. So Jefferson was a deist. He was not a Christian. He was a deist. He did, and so was Franklin. Franklin had some very nasty things to say about the Christian faith because it believed in miracles. And these rationalists, Jefferson and Franklin, did not like stories about miracles. So Jefferson took the Bible while he was president in French, in English, and Latin, and cut out all the parts of Christ's life that sounded miraculous to him, and just pasted the rest back in a little book and called it the Jefferson Bible. A woman in my Bible class who worked in the library brought me that one time. I didn't know that existed. Very short. <laughs> Very short, because if you take all the miracles out, you just have that Jesus was born in this town, and showed up here and was crucified over there. Well, if we just take one of C.S. Lewis's miracles, the six types, those of healing, those are the ones that really are very personal for us. We find that they show up in the Bible, in the Old Testament, nine times people were healed, but in the New Testament, 37 stories of where someone was miraculously healed by Jesus. And then 10 more by his apostles. There are very few topics in the whole Bible that have 56, not counting repeated stories of the same thing, examples of one kind of thing. Now we say, why? Why are there so many miracles and especially stories of healing in the Bible? Well, obviously for the same reason that the whole Bible is there, and that is for our instruction. They're not just there to tell us about a certain epoch of history when people believed in funny stories. The Bible is for now. It's for today. And the stories are there to teach us, not just to tell us that somebody else was gullible. Now why? What kind of instruction? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's see how Jesus did these things. 
What method did he use? So we can learn, and maybe we can do a few. Well, the first disturbing thing when you go through Jesus' stories of healing and miracles is that there were many methods. There was no formula, no equation, no magic word or abracadabra or something that he did and alone it occurred. As a matter of fact, what comes out immediately is that the most important thing about the miracles that Jesus did and what he was interested in most of all was the attitude of the people he was talking to. He was not doing it to prove that he was God. As a matter of fact, a lot of things he did that were miraculous turned people off. So it was not in order to prove he was divine. You believe that or you don't believe it. He did it for the sake of the people listening and their attitudes, not for self-glorification. In fact, if a person sometimes had the wrong attitude, the miracle did not occur. Remember when he came before Herod and Herod said, oh good, I've been wanting to meet you, I want to see some of your tricks. And Jesus did not say a word. He didn't do any. But when someone asked him for healing, it says all the people who came to him to be healed, he healed. Herod wasn't asking him to be healed, you see. He wanted to be entertained. He used many methods. Sometimes he touched people. Sometimes they touched him. Sometimes nobody touched anybody. Sometimes it was at a distance. Sometimes he spoke. Sometimes he rode in a crown. Sometimes he didn't speak. Sometimes he healed a whole crowd. Sometimes in front of a crowd. Sometimes in privacy. And he would say, bring this person to me all by himself. Sometimes he said, don't tell anybody. Then he said, tell everybody. There is no formula there. There must be a reason. <coughs> Obviously, because it is not the formula that counts. It is our relationship with God that is important. That relationship we said last time was faith. Now, where does that come in when it comes to miracles? If you believe, does that make it happen? Sometimes Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Sometimes it was the faith of another person. When the centurion came, he asked for his servant. And Jesus said, the centurion had great faith. He has not found faith like in Israel, and his servant was healed. Sometimes when the people did not have faith, it prevented miracles. In the town of Capernaum, Nazareth, which one was it? Where he said he cannot do any miracles because the people did not have faith and he left there. Sometimes faith isn't mentioned. When he drove the spirit out of the possessed person and sent it into the swine, it doesn't mention whether anyone had faith. Sometimes the healings that he did did not change the people's attitude at all or at least that we could tell. He healed 10 lepers. It doesn't say anything about whether the nine who didn't come back had faith as a result of his healing. It almost sounds as though he did that in order to teach a lesson about the one person who was grateful. So, 
Where does faith come in? Faith is not produced by miracles. Faith does not produce miracles necessarily. But rather the importance of the relationship is that when miracles are produced, we should recognize them as coming from God. The Lord, he is God. That's the reason for the events taking place. Now, let's apply that to today. Do miracles occur today? Well, it depends on which kind of definition we're interested in. A highly unusual event? All of nature? Or what are we looking for? Is the miracle that we're going to insist on the kind that everybody agrees is one? I want to read you some examples. Are these miracles? On January 25th this year in the New York Times, there was a headline, Pregnant woman believes that her prayers obviated a cesarean operation. Griffin, Georgia, a pregnant woman believes that prayers moved the placenta blocking her birth canal and she can now deliver her baby naturally without any risk to her or the unborn child. Jesse Jefferson, a mother of three who believes in faith healing, was ordered by the courts to undergo a cesarean section to save her life and the life of her unborn child. The placenta was blocking Mrs. Jefferson's birth canal, a condition known as placenta previa. She was released from the hospital yesterday after doctors decided that she might be able to deliver her baby normally because the condition had apparently corrected itself. Doctors testified in court earlier that it was, quote, highly and virtually impossible for the condition to reverse itself. They said there was a 99% chance that the baby would die at birth without a cesarean section and a 50-50 chance that Mrs. Jefferson herself would die or become a vegetable if she tried to give birth naturally. Is that a miracle? For her it certainly is. A skeptic will say, oh, that was one of those coincidences. It's one of those few times where the doctor's prediction was not correct. I have another one. A young man <clears throat> went to a college where he was told the professors are largely unchristian. And especially in one class, the professor of chemistry liked to make fun of the Christian faith. And so the young man said, when I get into that class, I'd like you to pray for me so that I can testify to my faith. Well, what this professor used to do every year at Thanksgiving time, I didn't tell the story before here, did I? Sometimes I don't remember. The professor would get up in front of the class before Thanksgiving vacation and hold a flask in his hand. And he would say, now, if there are any Christians in here or any other believers who want to pray, that when I drop this bottle, it will not break, you go right ahead and pray. Because there are certain laws in the universe. And whether you pray or your parents or your pastor, whoever prays, it won't do any good. The bottle is going to break when I drop it. 
And so he'd drop it into a break, and the kids would go home feeling rather depressed, the ones who were in church, and say, boy, I wonder whether the things that I'm being taught in church are any good. So this young man got into the class, and the next time Dr. Lee gets up there and says, now is there anybody who wants to pray in here that this bottle will not break? He says, yes, professor, I'd like to pray. And the professor said, no, that's very interesting. We have a fellow here who thinks he could pray that this bottle won't break. Let's all bow our heads and hold our hands while he prays. And the young man prayed, dear heavenly father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you have heard me. For your honor and Christ's name, don't let this flask break. Amen. Well, Dr. Lee let the bottle go, and it did not go straight to the floor. He happened to have his foot out, and it hit his foot, and it rolled over and did not break. Dr. Lee does not give that lecture anymore. <laughs> Was that a miracle? Well, the miracle of faith in many of those three or four hundred kids in chemistry class probably took place that day. Some will have said, no, he shouldn't have done that. That was tempting God. He didn't worry about that. He just knew that God wanted him to speak up because if you deny me before men, Jesus says, I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. And God stopped Dr. Lee's foot out. I have one more. I have a student in Wisconsin who's for the last 20 years been sending me clippings that he thinks I might find useful in lectures. And just by a little miracle, the one that came two weeks ago is called Miracles. And it says, Miracles, are they fact or fiction? And here is the religion reporter of the Milwaukee Journal trying to make up his mind whether miracles occur. And he says at the end, and this is very, very interesting in light of what we've been saying here in the last few sessions. Until recently, miracles were widely discounted by modern people because they were not scientifically verifiable and they went beyond the observable understanding of the universe. Then, along came the new physics of Max Planck, Albert Einstein, Werner Heisenberg, and others which announced that there was a system of subatomic activity that could not be verified by traditional scientific means and like miracles went beyond what could be observed and proved. Now if you cut through all that journalism there, what he is saying, we used to think that miracles are impossible because science proves that you can do those things. But then, about 1900, we found out that we don't know as much as we thought we knew. And therefore, how can we say that something is impossible when we don't understand the things that we do look at? What Max Planck, Albert Einstein, Werner Heisenberg were saying is, as I told you in the first lesson, there are no laws of the universe. So how can you talk about breaking one? There is no law of gravity, Einstein said. It's an illusion. Max Planck said things do not have a cause and effect relationship. 
They just have probability relationships. It sometimes happens this way, and sometimes happens another way, but most of the time, it happens one way. So therefore, it's nonsense to say that a miracle can be disproved, because we can't even prove the things we do see. So there is a great interest today, the writer says, in what is miraculous, since it's probably just something that doesn't happen very often. I remember Dr. Yotarud again in Oslo telling me that if a person came through the door and said, I just saw a person rise from the dead, as a scientist, he said, what would I do? Well, as a scientist, he said, what I would do is to write it down on a piece of paper and put it in my file. That's scientific. I wouldn't say, well, that's impossible, he's a nut, and therefore I won't listen to it. He might be very well ignoring the most important thing that happened in the last hundred years, or a thousand or so. I'd have to write it down, he said, and put it in there. And then in my file, I would have all these other people who died and didn't rise from the dead, but I'd have this one in there that did, according to this reporter, rise from the dead. And I could not get rid of it. I could not discount it and say, no, I will ignore this. Well, what are we to gather from this as far as the Christian's attitude is toward science and faith? Well, first of all, we should not have to apologize for something being irrational or hard to believe or even seemingly impossible if it is recorded in God's word. Did you ever think about the fact that if the whole Bible made sense, we wouldn't need it? We could make it up ourselves.
So, as far as these uncommon things in Scripture are concerned, these miracles, there are a few things we can learn from reading them. First of all, we don't tell God how to do things. You don't say, God, no, this doesn't make sense, I don't like it. You don't go to a doctor or a lawyer or some other professional that pay him a big fee and say, now here's what I want you to do. You go because you don't have any more ideas of your own. You're not getting any better with all your reason. So you go to a professional and you don't argue with him. You listen to him. Well, God's a professional when it comes to our life and soul. He made the whole works. He wrote the instruction manual and all. And we don't argue with him and say, I don't like how you did that in there. Doesn't make sense. That water into wine, it must have been some kind of trick. You don't tell him how to do it. God deals with the causes, not just the symptoms. You're sick and you pray for a miracle, you say, I want an addict to go away. Maybe there's a cause he wants to deal with. God sees more than the present. For God, there is no present, past, and future. It's all the same. It's kind of like relativity in this respect. There is no time. It's all relative. It's all in God's mind at the same time. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, it's all the same, the Bible says. And he sees the total picture. And what you're asking for may not fit in there. He sees side effects that you don't see. You ask for something, and if it would happen the way you ask, it might have effects you're not aware of, to you and to others. He sees other problems. He sees spiritual patterns that you're not aware of. The second thing I think we can learn, and I have to give credit to Mrs. Sprinkline here, who did a lecture on healing. Where are you going to get the next one? Because I'm reading some of her notes here. She did a lot of research in the Bible on this. And the second thing that we learn when we talk and learn about healing, and especially as Christ performed them, is that we do not suspect, if something doesn't happen the way we want it, we do not suspect someone of a lack of faith. You don't say, if you'd have enough faith, you'd get better. Christ said, if you had faith, you can move the mountains. You say, well, why can't I get rid of this sickness? Don't I have enough faith? Well, if anybody had a lot of faith, it was St. Paul. And what did he have? He had a sickness. And a thorn in his flesh. He said he kept asking God to make me well. We don't know what it was. Some theologians think that he had epileptic seizures in the middle of his sermons. He was incapacitated. Others, we don't know for sure what it was. But he had a serious ailment. He didn't get well. Timothy. It says he had frequent ailments. Well, did you ever think about the fact that maybe the reason why the healing or the thing is not occurring is not because the person who is sick doesn't have faith. Maybe it's his whole environment that doesn't have enough faith. In Nazareth, as I mentioned before, Jesus could not do any miracles because the town was full of unbelievers. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because there were not enough godly people there. Just imagine if there had been a few more. We would have been saved. We think today that there were maybe 500,000 people living in Sodom and Gomorrah. They found it, they think. 
far as science can tell, we found Sodom and Gomorrah. Professor of Valparaiso University is one of the archaeologists who found it. There are thousands of skeletons there. A few more believers. So the faith and dedication of the people surrounding the situation may be important. We don't blame the sick person. If you look at us, maybe the sickness is there to bring us to repentance. The whole church, the whole community. Now, there are also some do's. Those are the don'ts. We search our hearts. We look and see what is it in us that may be preventing it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, it says that we receive from God whatever we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, this is a little more serious than saying, well, we don't have to do anything. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that a Christian is a person who doesn't do anything. I've heard it said already by people who were relatively uninformed that the difference between a Catholic and a Lutheran is that a Catholic has to work his way to heaven, and a Lutheran doesn't have to do anything. They look it up in the dictionary, and it says Lutheran. A person who believes that you're justified by faith alone. That was the secret word of Luther's, alone. And to many people means faith and nothing else. But we forget the parts where it says, if you have faith, you will show it by your works. And here in 1 John it says, because we keep his commandments, then God does what we ask him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And again, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all your mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. In this first part, we all, it's easy to do, you know, God, I can't see him, I love him, but the neighbor you can't stand. Never mind him, like Peanuts used to say, I love mankind, but I can't stand people. <laughs> I mean, we like to do this loving kind of, theoretically, and then let's keep the sequence in mind. God first, then people, and then ourselves. We've seen the bumper sticker, J-O-Y, joy. Jesus, others, and then yourself. When we ask for prayers, oh, everybody has plenty of things to pray for for himself. Then after you're Tired of all your own problems, you might even think of some other problems. I have a seventh grade religion class, and last week we were talking about miracles. And I didn't tell them I wanted examples of miracles or anything to tell an audience about, but this one girl comes rushing into class last week and she says, I want to tell you about a miracle that happened to me. Really? Yes. We were home the other day, she said, and we lost the house key. And my mother said, it's got to be in the chair here because I had it and it must be in the chair. And they turned the chair upside down in search. Wasn't there. She and her sister and her father and mother all were looking all over the house and then finally they gave up. 
And they came back, and the girl said, in the meantime, she told her mother, we've been learning about prayer in school. Why don't we pray about it? So they prayed. Let's find the key. And they came back into the room, she said, and the key was lying in the chair. She said, it's a miracle. I said, does your sister think that's a miracle? Yeah. Did your mother think it was a miracle? Yeah. Did your father think it was a miracle? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell her tomorrow, if your father thinks it's a miracle, that's a miracle. <laughs> and then they got all excited in this one little girl got up and said, would you pray for me for a, mir for a miracle? And they said, sure, I'll pray for you. What should I pray for? I can't tell you. <laughs> well, I, I'll pray kind of anonymously, I said. You know, Me too. I said, I got a little suspicion. It's about a boyfriend. <laughs> By the time I was through on Friday, I had 20 people in the class, like 15 had their hands up. Over the weekend, would you pray for us? Unless you have faith like a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Pray that these kids, when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and into the sanctity of rationalism in college, keep that faith. And keep it the way the kid did who prayed for the bottle that went down there. <coughs> they're not all rationalists. Not all the professors are. I know a lot of them. And I saw where I teach and in other places. At Princeton University, many of the ones I interviewed, there are a great many Christians. But somehow it's harder. That's why Jesus said as a little child, somehow it's harder as your own reason develops to say that there are other areas of life that are not in the realm of reason and the repetitive. Those are the heroes of faith who know how to distinguish the areas of life that are subject to reason and those that are not. Those who are able to put everything in God's hands. This fellow didn't pray, don't let the bottle break. Did you hear that? He didn't say, don't let the bottle break. He just said, Jesus, I want to glorify your name. Period. You're in charge here. What is the ultimate miracle? After we get all through defining and explaining, I have a chapter in the book where I ask each scientist, what's the greatest miracle of all? What would be the most astounding thing that you can think of? Well, many of them said, if a person got up from the dead. And it reminds you of the story in the Bible where the fellow is in hell. And he says to Abraham, I have brothers up there. If somebody would rise from the dead, they'd hear. They just say it's some kind of cute trick. Faith is not produced by miracles, even if it is a resurrection. And besides, as Dr. Hynek said, a miracle is something that isn't repeated. In my view, resurrection isn't a miracle by that definition because we're all going to do it. It's repetitive. It'd be the most repeated scientific trick ever performed because there'd be no exceptions. Cremation, explosions, doesn't make any difference. 
They're all right. Not that the people are trying to avoid the resurrection necessarily from those means. In fact, I don't want God to use the same atoms I've got now. They're pretty worn out. They're like new ones. No, resurrection is not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is faith. You argue with somebody who doesn't have it and you'll find out. The more you argue, the less he has. Because it doesn't come by argument. And it keeps you humble because you don't produce it. You don't say, what's wrong with me? How come I can't produce faith in that person? You don't produce faith in yourself. Only God can do it. The ultimate miracle is something that only God can do. And it's free. You don't pay anybody to do it. Remember the story of the man who came and said, I want to do these miracles, what do you want? The man who really had to struggle with his reason before faith has worked in his heart was Nicodemus. The learned Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who came to Jesus by night because he was afraid somebody would see him, that he would ask Jesus a question because he knew everything. Or to be seen with his rebel. And he knew where his reason ended. He said, Lord, what must I do? He said, you've got to be born again. And at the end of that story, Jesus gave that beautiful passage. God sold off the world, and he gave his only begotten son. That is the ultimate miracle. And Nicodemus could not reason it out by himself. He could not find it in Aristotle and Plato, Plato, Galileo, Copernicus, or any of the others. He had to get it from God directly. And then when you have it, thank God for it, but then you have to do something. Brought a little thing along that shows how impossible it is to break nature's laws. I'm going to have another little version of that during the service. But this one, I use the word laws. You see, I was so well trained in science that I still use that word. Let's say the principles of the universe cannot be defied. If you try, you suffer for it. By the law of gravity, and they fall down. The hollow tool. When it's standing still, you don't pay much attention to it. But when it moves, you notice the faster it moves, the higher the pitch. The Christian has to move. Then he gives out a sweet sound. In fact, if you understand this thing totally, there's nothing in there for howling. Why does it make that sound? Well, it's been for a long time. I used this in physics for a whole lecture. How sounds are produced and how we get overtones in here and fundamentals and all kinds of other things with resonance, what have you. So, what about miracles? definition isn't easy in the first place. <coughs> we shouldn't say that they're scientific or unscientific because that's not very absolute anyway. What one person says, the other one disagrees with. 
God can do anything he wants. He made the whole thing. And let's just worry about us being in the right relationship with him. So then what he works in us is faith and the strengthening of it. Then we can ask him anything. And if the other person thinks it's a miracle or not, really, I don't care. If I get well, it's just my relationship with God. If he wants to think of it as a miracle, that's his business. If he wants one too, let him pray. Let me pray for him. And then they become relatively unimportant. And you don't get hung up on how come this person is still sick and the other one as well. But it's God and me and God and that person. And that's a winning combination. So now we have a little time, about five minutes for any questions or comments, or if you think that the world is thing even faster to get the next octave, you might get us. I can only get somebody on. Somebody have a good miracle to tell us. talking about the miracle of his faith. Thank you. 
through that story, I can only gather that the faith is not the important aspect of the miracle. Not that person's faith. Maybe somewhere else. The important relationship is that you recognize that God is in charge and you put yourself, whoever is involved, in God's hands. Well, our time is almost up. We start upstairs for a couple of minutes. Next time is our wrap-up session for Sunday in April, in which we will apply what we've done so far for our lives as Christians and as members of this church and how to be more effective. Thank you. Thank you.